When, uh, when we began this series on the, uh, the worthy walk, I told you that, that there was two things in this section, starting in Ephesians chapter 4 to, uh, to about 521, there was two things in this section that I, I wanted to cover kind of following our membership class. The, the first one was that section in Ephesians 4 and verse 5 where it talks about one baptism. And I, I, I really, I, I think that whole section was really helpful for us in the season that we've been in. We saw in Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, this ex- exhortation to walk in unity. And uh, I believe that this, this has been helpful. Even, even the whole series going through these exhortations to walk worthy of our salvation. By walking in unity, by walking in holiness, by walking in love. And today we're going to look at this next passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 14, on walking as light. But the other thing that I, I wanted to cover in this series after our membership, the other reason why I wanted to come to this section, was because I wanted to look at this passage in particular, which calls the church to walk as light. Because one of the functions of light is to expose darkness. Believers are light, and we're to function as light by exposing darkness. And, and so part of what we're going to see in, in this text is the, the practice of church discipline. What we might call the biblical practice of church discipline. And, and really, a, any good membership series, at least in my opinion, is, is going to kind of help the new members understand the way that our church practices or the way that a local church practices church discipline. You see, when, when you join a local church, one of the things that, that you're signing up for is accountability. Accountability to follow Christ. And in fact, we, we really just sang about that a moment ago. We, we sang and prayed that, that we would love God all our days and that we would walk in a, a manner worthy of our calling, that we would walk in a way that glorifies Him. And in reality, just, just by proclaiming yourself a Christian, you're inviting accountability into your life. See, if you say that you're a Christian, you're saying that you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus expects his disciples, his followers, to live in certain ways. And he expects us to encourage one another in following everything that he commands us. And that includes confronting one another when we go astray or when we go into sin. But when we join a local church, we, we're signing up for this kind of accountability in a special way. We're saying that we want this particular church and these particular people, the, the ones that belong to this church, to keep us accountable, to help us to follow Christ. And we're asking the pastors of that church to watch over our souls and to lead us and to shepherd us and to care for us and to guard us as we follow Christ in this life. And so again, if you call yourself a Christian, you, you're already, you've kind of already signed, signed up for that. All other Christians are to come alongside and help you to follow Christ. If you're a Christian, you're part of the body of Christ and the body cares for itself. And so we're all called to serve one another and to build one another up. And, and disciples of Christ are followers of Christ who help other people 
to follow Christ. And so just by coming here week after week and calling yourself a Christian, you're telling us that you want us to help you follow Jesus Christ. But again, membership makes that request even more clear. Again, membership is a commitment to a particular body of believers, including the leadership, and it's a commitment to serve the Lord together, to grow together and to follow Christ with us together. And that's going to involve the the process of church discipline. Now, even already, you can, there's the silence in the room. You can tell discipline is uh, maybe a scary thing. Maybe it's a, uh, maybe it makes you nervous to think about discipline. Maybe, maybe you've seen discipline practiced in, in not good ways. But the word discipline, although it can be a scary word, it, it really, you know, and even, even adding church in front of it doesn't even necessarily soften it at all. Um, you know, I wonder actually what, what you think when I say church discipline. But my sense of it is that there's a lot of misunderstanding in, in this area when it comes to this practice. My sense again would be that, that perhaps many of you have witnessed a skewed version of church discipline and so the thought of it scares you. But in reality, we should be very thankful that such a thing exists. Scriptures give us a very helpful guide on, on how to practice this and the purpose of it. And, and really the aim of this is to, to help us to be a holy people. Church discipline exists to help us to continue to follow Christ according to his word, to help us to be holy, to help us to grow, and to restore us if and when we go astray. And so that's the purpose of church discipline, to help us follow Christ, to follow his word, to help us be holy and growing. And if we go astray, God forbid, if we go into sin or if we go into error, church discipline is meant to help restore us and bring us back into fellowship with God and fellowship with his people. Now, we really shouldn't be so surprised that there is such a thing as this, because if you think about it, every sphere of life has some form of discipline. You know, you think about the workplace, where you work. Every workplace has a process of dealing with employees who are not doing a good job. There's a process that we go through. We could talk about schools. We could talk about uh, sports teams. There's discipline. You know, I was running laps. Coach coach didn't like what I did. I was was running laps. I was doing push-ups. I was I was running lines. The, you know, on a sports team, there's a, 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 an accepted form of discipline to help the, the team perform the best that they can. Any kind of organized social group or really anything that's organized in society in general, all of them have ways with dealing with their students or their athletes or the members of that society or the citizens of that country when they're not operating within the rules of the respective groups. And all of these, again, have methods for making sure that those who belong to those groups follow the rules, and they have ways to deal with those who don't. And because this is a world of sinful people, because, because this is a sinful world, there needs to be ways of enforcing order. Sin needs to be restrained because humanity is sinful. 
And so if we accept these forms of discipline in other spheres, we should also accept them in the church. But even more so, as I said already, the Word of God is clear on what we're to do. And so if we reject church discipline, in reality, what we're rejecting is God and His Word. And our passage, although it might not be the the most common passage to go to on this topic, our passage is a passage that speaks to this practice that we call church discipline. Now let's begin by, by reading our text. And I want to start again back all the way at verse 1. So look at, if, you're not, if you haven't opened your Bible yet, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to start reading at verse 1, but we're going to look at verses 7 to 14 this morning. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Well, again, on first glance, you you may wonder where I'm kind of drawing this idea of discipline from, but it's there in the text, and and we'll, we'll see it, even though it's not as detailed as some other passages. Children of light are called to expose the works of darkness. See, we're to be such a light that darkness is driven from our midst. You know, if, imagine if, if in this place we were, I don't know if you've ever seen those 360 degree construction lights, but if, if, if all of us were those kind of lights, if all of us were, were really lighting up this room in a 360 degree sphere, there'd be no darkness in the room. And our passage is teaching that we are like lights. And we are functioning, if we're functioning properly as lights, we will dispel the darkness in our midst. Now there's really two sections here. The, the first is verses 7 to 10. And the focus there is on, on who we are. Focuses on who we are. We were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. The second section focuses more on our deeds and, and the question then would be, what should we do as light? 
Well, we shouldn't do what they do. That is, we shouldn't do what those who are in darkness do. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, we should expose those things. And each of these two sections gives positive commands, what to do or what to be, and then there's negative commands, what not to do or what not to be. And so we've got a positive and negative side for each of these. And there's also a reason or reasons given to follow these commands. And so if you just kind of follow me here as we look at the outline here, in verse 7, we have the, the negative command first. It says, therefore, do not become partakers with them. And then we have the reason, verse 8, for at, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And the rest of verses 8 to 10 give the positive command. It says there, walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the first section. Then in the second section, we have the negative command in, in the first part of verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. We're not to do that. Don't take part in those works. Positively, in the rest of verse 11, but instead, expose them. That's what we are to do. And then there's two reasons given. First of all, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And the second reason is in verses 13 to 14. There's really two reasons there where it says, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so we'll go through those, and you've, you've really, you've got it there in your outline already. We're going to call this two directions for the children of light. Two directions for the children of light. And the, the first one is walk as children of light. And again, there's going to be a positive, a negative, and then a reason for the command. And we're going to go through it in that order, even though the text doesn't necessarily follow that order. We're going to do the negative, then the positive, and then we'll look at the reason. And so again, number one, walk as children of light, verses five, verses seven to ten. And then second, work as agents of light in verses eleven to fourteen. And again, these are things that are going to help us to walk worthy of our salvation. So first of all, walk as children of light, and the negative command there, the negative side of this is do not be partners with darkness. Verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. And I guess I should probably point out as well, if you look at verse 7, it starts with the word therefore, and then later on... Um, In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, it says, walk as children of light. And again, remember all of these sections that we've been looking at have this therefore walk. Therefore goes all the way back and ties to the other therefores that began in chapter 4 and verse 1, which really goes all the way back to look at our salvation. Because of our salvation and because of everything that God has done for us in Christ, therefore, here's how we should walk. And in this case, therefore, walk as children of light. And that walk starts by not becoming something. We're not to become partners with them. And so now we need to ask, well, who are they? Who are we not to partner with? 
And the them there in verse 7 refers back to the people that we talked about last week. These were people who were in verse 3 sexually immoral, impure, or covetous. We're not to partner with them. In verse 5, we saw that those people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And then in verse 6, we called them, where the scripture calls them, sons of disobedience. And the thing that's going to be important to hear as we go through this is that to recognize that these words were addressed to the church. Paul is talking here about professing believers who are immoral or who are covetous. And we're not to be partners with people who call themselves Christians, but live in sins that show that they're not Christians. And so the command not to partner with these people would would really apply more broadly to anyone who is characterized by these sins. Again, listed in verse 5 is where you'll see the sins, but but it's going to be important later to see that this section really refers especially to professing believers who are walking in sin. And the idea of the word there translated partner is of, of sharing in something with these people. We're not to share with them in their sins. We're not to do what they do. We're not to join them in the immorality, impurity, or the covetousness that they're walking in because these are sons of disobedience. Now we're going to skip over the first part of verse 8 as we move on here. We're going to come back to that, but let's look at the the positive side. So negatively, do not become partakers with them. Now positively, instead of that, last part of verse 8, walk as children of light. For the fruit of of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So the positive side is to walk as children of light. We're, we're, we're not sons of disobedience. We are beloved children. We are children of light. And what we see again then is a, a call for the Christian to be what he or she is. We are, we are light in the Lord and we should walk as children of light. And if you think about it, light is really a great way to think about the Christian. It's a great picture for the change that has occurred in our lives when we were saved. In Scripture, light and darkness kind of represent two aspects of the moral realm. Darkness is a picture of ignorance or a picture of error as well as a picture of, of sin or evil. And so we've got these two kind of aspects of, of darkness, ignorance and error, sin and evil. Light, on the other hand, is a picture of knowledge. It's a picture of, of truth. It's a picture of illumination in the mind. But light is also a picture of righteousness and goodness. Maybe you picture God's holiness shining forth as a light. And so when we think about light and darkness, to both of these, there's an intellectual aspect and there's a moral aspect. Light illumines the mind with God's truth and then it flows out of the heart and out of the life in good conduct. And so light is a great picture of the Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 5.14, he says, you are, to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And then he tells them to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so we are light, and that light should shine forth from our lives in works that glorify God. 
That's really important that our, the, the, we are light in our salvation. We've been transformed and now our light should shine in works that bring glory to God. Now, when we think about what kind of things Paul is thinking about when he says, walk as light, well, he explains it further in verse 9 where he says, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Fruit is what a tree or a plant produces. And so Paul's saying that, that the light that, that we are should produce in us all good and all right and all truth. Good is that which is beneficial, that which benefits others. Right or, or righteousness is, is morally upright behavior. Obedience to God who sets the standard of right behavior. That's what the kinds of things that we should be doing that when we walk this way. Truth is what corresponds with reality. And of course, God is true and his word is true. And so we should walk in a way that accords with the word of God. And the opposite of these things would be evil, bad, or wicked behavior and lying, error, or hypocrisy. The opposite of good, right, and true. And so if we are light, our actions should demonstrate the light that we are. And we've seen this really over and over again in this series. What a, what a people we should be as we think about what God has done for us in our salvation. In verse 10, Paul adds another element to this where he says in verse 10, and, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. We need to discern or find out or, or test or try to learn what pleases the Lord? And that's really the goal of the entire Christian life. This is the, the goal of our lives, is that we should be aiming in everything that we do to please the Lord. This is why we should get out of bed in the morning, to, to, to get out of bed and please the Lord with our lives every day. Our aim in life is, is again, it, it should be to please the Lord. That's why we've been saved, so that we can live in a way that pleases the Lord. And to kind of see this, I want to take you over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So go to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at a few verses over here. We're going to start in verse 9. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Paul says a really important thing there. He says, so whether we are at home or away... And he's talking about whether we're, we're in the body or out of the body, whether we're on the earth or in heaven, wherever we are, we make it our aim to please him. We make it our aim to please him. And then he says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so Paul recognizes that we're going to stand before Jesus Christ one day and we're going to give a, an account for the lives that we lived, for how we lived our lives. And we're going to be rewarded for what we've done. And so knowing this, Paul says we make it our aim to please the Lord because he knows that he's going to be rewarded for what he's done. But even more than that, what Jesus has done for us in saving us should motivate us to live our lives in a way that pleases God. Our, our lives should be lived to honor him who saved us. Our, our lives should be lived to make much of this great God who is our Savior. And so Paul says a few verses later in verse 14, he says, Therefore, 
Oh, I'm in the wrong verse. Verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so Jesus died for us. This is the love of Christ that Paul's thinking of in verse 14. Jesus died for us so that we could be turned from living for ourselves and that we might live for his sake. And living for Jesus' sake is really living to glorify God, to honor God with our lives. And so our goal in any and every situation is to discern what pleases the Lord. How can I respond to this situation in a way that would honor and glorify the Lord? And God's word is our guide in this. Whatever he says, that's what pleases him. He has, he has told us in his word what pleases him. And Jesus is our ultimate example in how to do that in the body. And so God's word is our guide and Jesus is our example. And this is what our aim is, to please the Lord. And so this is what we're to do as children of light. We're, we're not to be partners with people who are walking in darkness. And we're to, to walk as light in, in goodness and righteousness and truth. And we're to discern what would please our Savior and live our lives to glorify him. And the reason that Paul gives for this is back in verse 8. So look back at verse 8. The reason is that you were once darkness, but now you are light. And so verse 8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And this is the reason really that we've seen over and over again in this series, that we should live this way because of who we are in Christ. Right? Salvation has changed us, and now we need to live not according to who we once were, but we need to live according to who we are in Christ. We were darkness, but now we are light, and therefore we should not participate in darkness because that's no longer who we are. We are now the children of light, and so there's a new way of living because of what God has done for us in salvation. And we spent so much time in this series talking about it that we're just going to kind of leave it there, and let's go on now to our second directive. And we called this number two, we are to work as agents of light. Work as agents of light, verses 11 to 14. And again, we start with the negative side of this, where Paul says in verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. And so again, we're moving from, from who we are to what we do. We're moving from, from being to action. We're, we're moving from who we are to the deeds of the people. And so we're to take no part in the unfruitful works or the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Verse 7 said, do not become partakers with them, speaking about the people. Now verse 11 moves more to do not or take no part in the works that these kinds of people are doing. And take no part there means really to be associated with someone in some activity. And so don't be associated with them in these kinds of activities. We're not to participate in those works of darkness. And these works of darkness are described there as unfruitful. 
The fruit of the light was, remember, was good and right and true. The works of darkness, on the other hand, are unfruitful. Now we might ask here, well, what does Paul have in mind when he thinks about unfruitful works of darkness? What does he specifically have in mind? And I think we could simply say that, that it would be anything that's not pleasing to the Lord. Anything that doesn't glorify him, anything that's not good and right and true and, and pleasing to the Lord, those are the things that, that would be the opposite. They would be things of darkness and, and we should have no part in those things. And I think, of course, we'd have to include what we saw last week, which was immorality, impurity, greedy covetousness, um, all, all of the things we saw even in verse 5 there, where it says, um, oh, sorry, verse, verse 4, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, these things that were out of place, all of these things would be categorized as the unfruitful works of darkness. And so in short, if it's unfruitful or if it comes from darkness, we should have nothing to do with it. We shouldn't participate in it as children of light. Instead, we should expose these kinds of things. And so here's what we are to do. The positive side, I call this work as agents of light. So negative, take no part in the works of darkness. Now positively, here's what we should do. We're to work as agents of light. And so take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Instead expose them. And so we're to expose unfruitful works of darkness. And again, this is directed to the church. This is uh, speaking about things in the church. Now this word expose is an important word in the New Testament, and it's used 17 times in the New Testament. And it means there, it means to rebuke, it means to reprove, it means to convict or expose or to bring something to light. And what I want to do is I want to take you through a number of these passages and we're going to start in Matthew. So let's go to Matthew chapter 18 and I just want to show you not all of these 17 times but, but some of the, the important ones here that really speak about this, this thing we call church discipline. So look at Matthew 18 Starting in verse 15, this is the first time we see it in the New Testament. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And there's the word there, tell him his fault, which, which really means to show him his fault or expose his fault to him, or, or even we might even say reprove him. And so if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so there's one use of that word. Let's go now over to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, we'll start reading in verse 18. This is speaking about John the Baptist. And it says there, Luke three eighteen. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. And so John the Baptist reproved Herod about Herodias and all of the other things. That's our word there. He, he exposed his sin and he rebuked him for his sin and he showed him his fault in regards to his sin. 
Let's go to the Gospel of John now and go to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 20 says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so here's a, an exposing of dark works. These wicked people hate the light. They don't want their deeds to be exposed. They, they do these things in secret. And that word secret comes up in our text as well. So let's go to the, the next place that we see these are, is really in our text. Ephesians 5.11, which we already read, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And then again in verse 13, that word's used again, but, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Now go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. It says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them, that's our word, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Rebuke them in the presence of all that the rest may stand in fear. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, very well-known verse, verse 2, Paul says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And our word there, the first one, reprove, that's that word, expose. And so the preaching of the word is, is to expose sin in the midst of the church. Titus 1.9 is another place where we see this. This is directions to an elder. It says that he must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And so this verb, this, this verb translated in our passage, expose, is almost always used of confronting people about their sin and showing them their fault or showing them their error and then calling them to repentance. That's the, that's the idea of this verb. Again, confronting people about their sin, showing them their fault, exposing it to them so that they understand their sin, and then calling them to repentance. And so what Paul's commanding us to do then as a church is to confront people who are in sin. But again, this isn't just in general about all people. This really refers to people in the church, people who call themselves Christians, in fact, in, a, in another passage on church discipline, and we're going to look at this a little bit here, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Paul explicitly says here that, that we're not to judge outsiders. And so we're not necessarily to confront unbelievers about their sin. Of course, in our evangelism, we're going to talk to unbelievers and we're going to call them to repentance, but we're not called to expose every evil thing that unbelievers do and kind of nitpick them that way. We're really to, to preach them the gospel and call them to turn and follow Christ. And so Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, nor the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then, then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you to not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, notice those are the same words that we see in our passage there in chapter 5 and verse 4 and again in verse um, 6. So again, anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or who is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those who are outside. And then Paul says, quoting from the Old Testament, he says, purge the evil person from among you. And so we're to respond when a so-called brother, that's how the NASB translates that, that one who bears the name of brother. We're, we're to respond when a so-called brother is in sin. And the, the first step in that is to reprove the sin, to expose the sin. Now again, in evangelizing lost people, there's a time to show them their sin and to call them to repentance. But it's, it's really the sins of our brothers and our sisters that we're called to deal with. You see, Christians, again, are, are those who have turned from sin. And, and we're those who are continually recognizing and putting off sin. Our, our whole life of sanctification is putting off sin and growing to be more like Jesus Christ. And, and as people like that, we actually invite reproof because we hate our sin, right? We want to be rid of our sin. We don't want to continue in sin. We want to put it off and glorify God. We want to please the Lord. And we recognize that sin doesn't please the Lord. And so the, one of the ways that we help one another to grow in Christ is that we go to brothers and sisters who are caught in sin and, and we try to lovingly reprove them and, and turn them from their sin. And so I want to show you the, the biblical process for doing this. Jesus laid it out really clearly in Matthew 18 and, and we're going to go there, but on your way there, I want you to look at Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. And even as you turn to Galatians chapter 6, I'll just read again our text today. It says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So we are called to expose them. That's a command. And then Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so these are commands. We are to expose, we are to seek to restore anybody who's in sin. Now let's go to Matthew chapter 18 and let's look in detail at this passage here that we already read from earlier. But Matthew 18, starting in verse 15. This is really our Lord's first commandment to his church where he specifically refers to the church in Matthew chapter 18. Again, starting at verse 15, what we're going to see as we look at this is we're going to see four steps of, of what we call church discipline. And step one is what Jesus says here in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins against you, 
Go and tell him his fault. Again, that's that same word, to expose his sin, reprove him of his sin. Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so Jesus is speaking about when somebody sins against us. But these other passages that we've been look, that we just looked at, Galatians 6, our passage tells us that, that really this refers to any sin. We could, we could apply this to any kind of sin that's happening in the body. If your brother or a, a, a fellow believer is in sin, or you think that they're in sin, here's, here's what Jesus commands you to do. Go and tell him or her his or her fault. And I would tie this with the Galatians passage and say that you go and you do that in a spirit of gentleness. And you go and, and you explore is a word that I like. You go and explore. You don't, don't go and accuse your brother of something that you suspect, but, but go in gentleness. And if you're not sure if there really is a sin, then, then ask about it. If you're not sure, go in gentleness. Even if you are sure that a sin, you, you know for a fact that a sin has been committed, then, then go in gentleness. But you, you do have to go. This is a command. Now, I want to kind of give you a little bit more on this because we recognize, as we, even as you think about this, that all of us are, are growing. And, and none of us are, are perfectly like Christ. You know, for example, if you haven't loved me as yourself and been utterly Christ-like towards me in every way since I've come here, then in some sense, you've sinned against me, right? And, and we could put it the other way too. By that standard, I've sinned against you too, because I haven't been utterly and perfectly Christ-like in everything that I've done since I've come here. And so if, if that was the standard, we would be confronting one another every time for every weird look that they gave us. And, and that's not what we're called to do here. So here's some kind of wisdom on, on when do I approach a brother who's in sin? When do I do this? When, what's the right time to do this? See, because we recognize that we all have to grow. We recognize that, that we should often overlook offenses in love. First Peter 4.8 tells us that love covers a multitude of sins. And the idea there is that we, we overlook a multitude of sins. When somebody sins against us, most often... We should just brush it off in love and, and even, even just pray that that person would grow in that way or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, your, your spouse is a little bit rude to you or, or kind of snarky in a remark. You just, you just overlook it in love and, and, and be gracious to them. Just as you would want them to be gracious to you for your snarkiness and your bad attitude. It, it really works both ways. And so we recognize that people need to grow and so we, we overlook most minor transgressions in love. But we shouldn't overlook sins if, if they bother us, right? Or, or if it's continuing to hurt our relationship. If something's hurting your relationship between another brother and sister, or if you wonder if something's hurting your relationship between another brother and sister, and you're unable to overlook that offense or, or that sin, then, then you need to go and have a gentle talk with that person. That's God's command. Go and have a talk with them. Other times when we shouldn't overlook sin is if it's, if it's hurting that person's reputation. You know, maybe, maybe everyone knows about that sin except the person who's in sin. Well, then you should go and talk to that person who is sinning. Or if it's, um, 
If it's hurting that person's reputation, that's another time that, that you should go and talk to the person. If it's hurting the relationship that that person has, maybe with God or with others, if it's, if it's hindering them, or if they're caught in sin, if they're, if they're trapped in sin, that's the idea of that Galatians 6, one word. If they're trapped in sin, then we need to go and restore them. And another time, maybe when we don't overlook sin, is if there's an ongoing problem of sin in someone's life. You know, an occasional harsh word we might overlook and and it would be loving and gracious for us to do it. But if it's a pattern in a brother's life, then we should address it. And again, we ask, well, why should we address it? Well, because we love that person. And it's not loving to allow sin to wreak havoc in another believer's life. And so the loving thing to do is to go and try to help that person put off their sin. Now, notice how Jesus says this again. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. It doesn't say, go tell five people who will listen and empathize with you and then go and tell him his fault. No, it says, you and him alone. And this is so important for for a, a healthy body, for, for the vitality of the body, that, that we, don't, we don't spread misinformation or, or we don't spread rumors of other people's sins. We go and we talk to the person who has sinned. Go, you and him alone. And you might say, well, I don't feel like I could do that. I'm not equipped to do that. Well, you've got your Bible and you've got the Holy Spirit and you think that person's in sin. Then Jesus says, you're ready to go. You're equipped to do this. Go. Don't spread the, the, the offense. Go and, and be reconciled to your brother. And, and listen, and, and this is really important. If the sin is serious enough that you're willing to tell somebody else about it, then you must go and talk to that other person. Like If it's serious enough that you're talking about it with somebody else, then, then you have already crossed a line and you yourself are in sin and you need to go and talk to the person who offended you. And so if you think that someone has sinned against you or you're offended about it so that your relationship with that person is, is hurting or your relationship with that person is hindered, then you should go and you should ask about the situation. You should explore the situation and have a discussion with the person. And if somebody tells you that so-and-so sinned against me, Don't even listen to it if you can help it, but take that person right away to talk about it with the persons that are involved. Okay, this is, this is just like biblical, how do we handle sin in our midst? Jesus tells us right here, again, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he listens and repents of his sin, asks for forgiveness, if, if he responds appropriately, whatever that would be, then, then you have gained your brother. You have won your brother. And the idea is that, that just like the lost sheep in the, the previous verses of Matthew 18, you have, you have brought your brother back. You have turned him from his sin and done a great thing. And so if somebody offends you and you go and talk to them and they repent, they ask for forgiveness, then you forgive them. And, and in most cases, the relationship would be restored immediately better than it was before. And the issue's done. 
You don't bring it up again. You don't talk about it with others. You don't let that, that thing, whatever it was, hinder your relationship. And that's really it. Case closed. You've gained your brother. The whole thing is done. Nobody else needs to know about it. But sometimes, and, and, and Lord willing, it's, it's very rare, but, but sometimes a professing believer won't repent when confronted. And so the question comes up, well, what should we do then? And this comes then to step two of church discipline. Step two of church discipline, look at the next verse, verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so you take another person or maybe you take two other people along. Now often at this point, a pastor would get involved, but it doesn't have to be a pastor. It could be anyone. And so you bring some more people along. It could be one of two things. It could be that you are wrong about the sin and the other person didn't sin at all and you're mistaken. And so the witness might help you to realize that you are wrong and that that thing is not even a sin. Or it could be the other way that the witnesses recognize that, yes, there is a sin that's happening and this person is not repenting. And so they're going to go then and they're going to try to gently restore this person by confronting them about their sin. And so the witnesses involved are, are really neutral witnesses. They're coming, they're seeking restoration, they're seeking to, to restore the fellowship that's been broken in the body, and they're going to, to be servants of the Lord in that case. And if they confirm the sin, they would, they would show that person their sin, they would expose the sin, they would reprove the sin, and they would call their brother and sister to repent. And if there was no sin, well, that's even better. Great, no sin. And, and, uh, and if the person repents, that's great as well. And so it, whatever happens then, that way we forgive and restore. And that would be the end of the case. If there's no sin or if the person repents. And again, if that happens, we don't talk about it again. We don't bring it up with others. We don't let it hinder our relationship. We restore that person and forgive that person. And that's the end. But if they won't listen to the person and the two or three witnesses, then we go to step three of church discipline. And it says there in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now in our church and in the the way that we're structured, this would involve now the intervention of the pastors, at least in the first case. And if the person still refuses and, and continues in their sin, even after the pastors have confronted them, even after the, the, the witnesses have kind of, kind of explained the whole situation, then the, the whole church is told about the sin that's going on in this person's life. Now, we don't tell the church to shame the person. We don't tell the church to shun the person. We tell the church so that all of us can go and call the person to repentance and plead with them to turn from their sin. And so we would all go, at least not maybe every single one of us individually, but everyone who has opportunity, everyone who knows this person, we would go and, and hopefully by God's grace, when all of us go and show us, show our love and call this person to repent, hopefully they would be persuaded to turn from their sin. Typically at Grace Community Church or at Grace Life Church, this, this step would involve a, a formal registered uh, mail letter sent to the person that says something like, if, 
If you don't inform us of your repentance by such and such a time and such and such a day, then we're going to tell the church at the Lord's Supper on blank day. And so there would, there would often be a, a formal letter as I was thinking about it in town here. I, I think it'd be more likely that we would maybe bring a letter to the person because otherwise it could take months for us to get the mail. I don't know if you guys have that same kind of situation, but registered mail takes forever. And so we would, we would probably more likely just go and, and bring the letter to the person. And then in step three, we would, again, we would allow a certain amount of time. And, and in this whole thing, we would want to be very patient. We would want to err on the side of patience and grace with people as we work with them in regard to their sin. But we would allow a certain amount of time for the whole congregation to have an opportunity to talk to that person. And if after the whole congregation has talked to that person and a a bunch of time has gone by again, we would write another letter, which we would call step four of church discipline. And and we would say again, if you don't repent by such and such a day, then we're going to formally put you out of the church. And this is what we call step four of church discipline, which Jesus mentions in the next part of our text, verse 17. He says, if he refuses to listen to them, the witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, a Gentile and a tax collector means treat that person like an unbeliever. It doesn't mean treat that person poorly or anything like that. You know, Jesus has some tax collectors with him. You know, Matthew, who wrote this book, was a tax collector. And so it's kind of kind of funny, I think, to... to you know, Matthew's like, come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, I repented of my tax collecting. But anyways, um, treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. This person is acting like an unbeliever. They're, they're continuing in their sin. And so we should treat them according to the way they're behaving. According to our text, what we saw last week, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so we're going to treat them that way. We're going to treat them like an unbeliever. And so to kind of see how that happens... I want you to, to remind you of 1 Corinthians 5, and let's go back over there. Go to 1 Corinthians 5. We read part of that already, but this is the other passage that really deals in detail with church discipline. We'll start at verse 3. 1 Corinthians 5, 3, Paul says, this is kind of step four of church discipline is what, what this is here. He says, though I am absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present... I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did this such a thing. So there's a, a person in their church that's involved in a sin and they're not repenting. And so Paul says, I've judged that person. And now I want you to kind of formally judge that person. And so in verse 4, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 6 says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And then again in verse 12, it says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. 
And so if the person fails to repent or refuses to repent and continues in their sin all through this whole process, then we're to put them out of the church. We're to, to purge the evil person from among us. We're to treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector. And we're to really, Paul calls it here, delivering them over to Satan. And the reason he, he speaks about it that way is because now they are removed from the church and they're outside of God's realm, the church, and they're now inside of Satan's realm, which is outside of the church. And the reason, again, that we do this is so that the person might be saved in the day of the Lord. And so our hope, again, is that this, this whole thing, everything we're doing, our hope is that we're going to restore this person to fellowship with God and to fellowship with the church. Our, our aim is love and restoration, never to hurt the person. Our, our goal is to bring the person back to Christ. Look at verse uh, 11 there, 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, But now I am writing you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now in this text that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul immediately goes to step three of church discipline because the sin of this man was, was already public. Everybody knew about it, but the Corinthians weren't doing anything about it. And so there's times when we need to move a little bit faster in church discipline, but typically, again, like I said earlier, we just want to be patient with people and, and take time with them and give them time to turn from their sin. Another example of, of kind of escalating church discipline instead of step one and two, but going kind of immediately to step three or four is in Titus chapter three and verse nine to 11 where Paul says there, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For a, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. And so there's a time when somebody's being divisive in the church where there should be a warning even it's debatable there how to translate that second warning. It's, it might not even be necessary, but if somebody's being divisive in the church, there's a warning, and then you're to put that person out of the church and, again, have nothing more to do with him. Do not associate with them. Put them out of the church. And so I hope that, that this kind of tour of, of church discipline has been somewhat helpful. And even as I kind of wrote this and thought about this, I thought, you know, Always in, in things like this, there's going to be questions. And so there's going to be maybe specific situations that you have in mind. How would we handle that? And if you have questions about this, I would just say, please send them to me. Just send me a text message. Ask me your question or, or give me a call this week and we'll talk about how, how our church would do that or, or if there's other verses that you have in mind. But that's kind of a rundown of church discipline. And again, the purpose of discipline is to restore the straying believer, to restore them to purity, to restore them to holiness, to restore them to walking in the light, to restore them to walking in sweet fellowship with God. The church is to be a holy people. We're to be a, a pure people. And so we're to remove those who are corrupting the flock with their sin. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little bit of sin in the, in the midst of the church 
can corrupt God's holy church. And so we're not to be a people that ignores sin. We're to be a people that loves others enough to confront them when they're in sin. Now I'm going to give you the, we're, let's go back to our text, Ephesians 5. And I'm going to give you the reasons that Paul gives here rather quickly. The first reason that he gives in verse 12 for us to not partake in the, the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them, is verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And so the first reason is that the darkness is shameful. Sin is shameful. And so we're not... It, you know, and, and, and let me just say it this way. That's reason enough not to participate but instead to be an agent of light because sin is a shameful thing. And so we should help people to put off their sin. As believers, we should flee it. As believers, we want to flee it. And, and really, we should be thankful to be part of a body that would expose and confront us if we go astray. I know for myself, I'm thankful that, that if I know that if I go astray, that there's people in my life that are going to call me to repentance and try to bring me back to the Lord. And I'm, I'm so thankful to have people like that. And that's what the church really should be. But reason number one not to do these things is because, simply because the darkness is shameful. Reason number two, I called it light is visible. Light is visible. And in verses 13 and 14, it's really, these are meant to be an encouragement in this ministry of exposing sin. Light is visible. And so Paul says in verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so light makes things visible. Light dispels darkness. And remember, we are light. And so when we expose sin and when we confront those caught in sin, when we're faithful in this process of church discipline that our Lord laid out for us, the darkness will come to light. That's what this is all about. The darkness will come to light. And darkness and unfruitfulness and sin will be removed from our midst and people will turn from it and they will follow the Lord. And sleepers will awake if we take from this we, what, we, what they think is an ancient hymn that we don't have where Paul's quoting from there, but where he says, awake, O sleeper. Sleepers will awake. Those who have kind of fallen asleep and aren't living for eternity, aren't living for the glory of God, and have kind of are just kind of going through this world in a daze and blinded by their sin, we will wake them up and they will come to their senses. And those who are dead, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Those who are dead will come to life. In other words, when, whenever you're dealing with this ministry of, of church discipline, you don't really know the true state of the person, right? You don't know, are they, are they a sleeper that has fallen asleep and has got trapped in their sin, or are they steer, still spiritually dead? Are they saved or unsaved? We don't know. Their, their fruits aren't showing that they're saved. But the, the promise here is that as we're faithful in this ministry, as we're faithful as agents of light, the Lord will use us to awaken people who are asleep and even bring people in the church who are still dead in their trespasses and sins and bring them to life. And so if we are faithful to operate as light, Christ will shine through us and awaken sleepers 
and resurrect spiritually dead people. And that should be a great encouragement to us as we participate in this ministry. Because again, our goal in life as Christians is to glorify God. Our goal is to please Him. And so when we're living in ways that aren't pleasing to Him, we're thankful to have other brothers and sisters to come and be faithful to this and call us back to the Lord, back to repentance, back to the place where true joy is found because the sin that they're caught in, if they're true believers, it's not pleasing to them. If they're lost and they're not believers, that sin's going to lead them to hell. And so we need to be faithful in this ministry. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to, to look at this, this doctrine. And Father, even though maybe it doesn't come naturally to us, we thank you that you have called us to be light in this world. We thank you that you have called us to expose sin. And, and we know, Father, it's not always easy to confront people. And so, Father, we pray that we would have the love of Christ, that we would, that we would be light and that we would just shine and that the darkness would dissipate in our midst, Father. Help us to, to function the way that you've told us to. Help our church to be faithful in this, in this really frightful thing called church discipline. Help us to respond well to it, we pray. And again, help us in everything that we do to be pleasing to you. That's the goal of our life, Lord. We want to honor you. And, and even at now as we come and sing, we want to glorify you in our song. And so we ask that you would help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen.